Safi Lakani, co-founder of Cognitics. Thanks for joining us today. It's good to have you. I know this is kind of your, uh, your neck of the woods. You went through Peace Tech Lab Accelerator. I believe uh-huh. you spent some time at the Institute of Peace actually working on, on staff. So uh, great, great to have you here. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, it's great to be back here in the various iterations that I've gone through at USIP. Yes. This is wonderful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. So you went from boy at USIP to entrepreneur and now you're, you're, uh, you're on, in the media, right? In, in the same, all in the same space. So, right. um, but yeah, I think it'd be really good to start this off just kind of learning a little bit more, you know, about your story and kind of how you transitioned over from where you were into the, to the whole world of, of entrepreneurship and kind of what you're doing with, with Cognetics. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I used to work at USIP and it was one of the agencies that I spent quite a lot of time working for. The others were the World Bank, the UN, and the EC. And my past life with these institutions was focused on international development and very much so on the governance angle of that because particularly when you're talking about conflict and fragile affected states or what we know as frontier markets or emerging markets or high-risk markets, governance is one of the biggest issues that presents a challenge towards progress in these countries, you know, creation of jobs, you know, distribution of wealth, etc. At least that's what I thought. <laughs> and then over time, working within these institutions, I realized that we were doing the same program, spending the same money. And I mean, if you look at the list of countries on the fragility on the CPI and the fragility index index right now, um, they're pretty much the same countries that have sort of fallen off and gone back on. Um, so obviously, something that we were doing was not quite right. And then towards the end of my time working in an, in international development, I started to work much more on using the private sector as an engine of growth in order to address some of the challenges in these contexts. Um, I worked for the governor um, of Aceh, uh, who wanted to... Aceh is in Nigeria? Aceh is in Indonesia. Okay. Yeah. And there I was working for the UN. One of these uh, interventions that he wanted to make after he became governor was to get investment into the province, which was newly autonomous, or at least semi-autonomous, and to spend that investment on creating jobs through renewable energies. Actually, I had fought this conflict with Indonesia on the basis of this inequitable share of nat- the natural resources that were there. And he really wanted to turn the focus away place it, place the emphasis on renewables and ensure that that economy would drive growth at, at the grassroots level. So that's where this sort of, this interest in the private sector really started to take off. And that grew as more and more you see that governments, although they may be legitimate in many cases in being elected as governments, the way in which we func- the way in which they function, the sort of the incentive structures within governments aren't always aligned towards addressing the challenges that a country faces. Right. And at the same time, you see the private sector moving much more firmly into that space. Mm. And do you think that good governance is a prerequisite to a thriving private sector, or do you think it has to come from the private sector first, where that has like the kind of um, government and the public side of things can see what's happening in there, and then the good governance comes into place. 
Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I believed initially. Okay. <laughs> that, and that, hence the reason, you know, that I focus very much on, on governance. Um, we see that that's not always the case. I mean, that is very much, that research was based very much on the European model, um, that you needed to have these effective institutions for governance before, you know, investment was there, before there was security and contracts and so on. That's not the case in the developing world. Mm. And what you've seen is the growth of either, you know, isolated economies or you've got these emerging economies that are both impacted by weak governance, but also driving forward like more effective governance frameworks right. institutions. You yeah. Know? I mean, it seems like, you know, like I think one education on um, the actual risks of, of these markets, because a lot of these, you know, frontier markets are, presents a lot of very high risk factors that right. like a, a, an equivalent deal in the West, right? You, you like you want to come across. And then there's also the issue of repatriation of profits. And so there's all, all, all sorts of issues along with that. But now that we're in a world where software and data is becoming more and more accessible and, you know, maybe the, um, the ability to use new technologies like machine learning and big data to actually predict these risks and lower some of the geopolitical or some of the, uh, on the ground risks, mm-hmm. right? To invest, and, and and is that kind of your your primary focus with with what you're doing? Or yeah, very okay. much so. I mean, what what we saw as the challenges was one getting the private sector to stay invested in high risk markets and to be investing in managing those risks. For us, risks and sustainability are two side you know, two sides of, of the same coin. Um, so one of our um, client bases is, is, of course, you know, corporations that work and invest in high-risk markets. The other, of course, are the governments and the international donors that support the types of frameworks that can help make sure that investments are sustainable. Hmm. And so, I mean, and so when you say sustainable investment, can, can you, like, give us a broader term of what you mean? So sustainable investment is investments that recognize the need for having a broader impact beyond, you know, return on investment um, or growth within a company. Um, They recognize that there is a longer term concern than, you know, your quarterly balance sheets and that you are an actor. You know, companies are actors and important actors at both the local level in the places in which they operate and also at the national level, as we you know just talked about and driving forward good frameworks for for encouraging investment and redistribution of wealth, growth of jobs. Mm. So it's, it's, you know, it seems like sustainable investment, when you say that, it's more of investing in a project, a company where they take the broader stakeholders into consideration versus the shareholders, like maximizing shareholder value versus maximizing stakeholder value. Yes. Uh, And that's something I, I was taught at Virginia Tech, the... I had a you know ethics a management ethics course and they taught kind of how companies are starting to move towards a uh, broader stakeholder model which at the time I mean this was kind of you know in in the years after two thousand eight it's like is that is that really happening or you know. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember back in the 1980s, you know, with the first bank account that I opened and, you know, they send you all this bump about additional products and services. I remember receiving something um, about their investments. Um, and one of them was this, the, you know, the very start of that negative list approach. So we do not invest in companies that, uh, you know, tobacco companies or companies in defense or that was back in the 1980s. Now we've got to a point where 
companies are really thinking about the values that they purport in their product services and the way in which they're governed. And this is so important because, um, as you probably know, like within the next decade, there's going to be a transfer of $68 trillion of wealth from one generation to the next. And millennials are very, very different in terms of the way in which they use their purchasing power to align with with the value. They don't really have this difference between public and private life in the way that, you know, my generation did. Um, And I think that's going to be really important for companies to keep up with. Mm. You know, that's about the things that they buy, the companies that they wish to invest in, um, and also who they want to work for. You know, they want to see they want to see governance that's aligned with their own values. Yeah. So, so millennials are going to have to save the world. Is that, um, is that what you're saying? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we, we certainly have the tools and the technology to do it if, you know, resources are allocated um, responsibly and, and correctly. And, and, and I do agree. I think millennials, a lot of their purchasing power and all, a lot of their, their, their voice, like their individual voice is certainly amplified with some of the tools and, yeah. and platforms we have. Um, and that also brings into the factor of like what, you know, Peace Tech Labs or Peace Tech Lab is here for, which is, you know, kind of, um, helping to or using some of these platforms that mm-hmm. people are communicating on. Like, how can we prevent some hate speech and prevent violence before it happens? Um, and so, and, and that seems like is a big part of Cognitics as well, right? And that's kind of what you, you help your clients do in, in these markets. Um, a little bit. A little I bit. mean, okay. what we do use social media scrapings. That's one of the data sources that we use. But um, we're actually drawing data from a range of different, what I'd really call non-conventional sources. So there are there are certainly tools on the market that will help companies to identify risk. Um, they rely very much on some of these large data sets that are collected by, you know, the IMF or ECD, along with national governments. Now, we're starting to recognize, actually, we've recognized for a long time that there are significant problems with those data sets. Um, and I'll give you one example. Tanzania recently, just last year, um, put into place an act. It's called the Statistics Act, which is actually much more important than it sounds. It prevents any organization or company from using data about Tanzania, about the economy or anything else that has not been approved by the chief data scientist or economist mm. in, in Tanzania. So there's this, there's this idea that, you know, governments can have a monopoly on the type of data that, that we use. This is a little frightening. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, we know that there's, there's all these issues with, with the data around accuracy, you know, bias, etc. Um, and not only that, but granularity, you know, how often is it collected? So we've really, we've been able to identify a range of other data sources that will give companies a much better insight into yeah. into what's going on. Mm. And it's even more um, concerning in countries where uh, the leaders have um, been willing to utilize the kill switch when it comes to turning off the internet, mm-hmm. like, like Cameroon, Ethiopia. Chad, yeah. yeah. I mean, inten- intention in that case is, is mostly irrelevant. That's the precedent that it sets, right? When it, whether it's upcoming elections or whatever it may be. One thing I would be curious to hear from you, because you've been in this world for um, for a little while now. When did like the development finance and like the NGOs? When did they start taking social media platforms seriously? Because like when they first came out, 
even like in, in corporate America, it was just kind of this thing for like, you know, college students or like what, like, you know, and so was there a, um, kind of a, a transition maybe over the past five years where like they kind of started to understand these platforms and how powerful they are in, in, in a, you know, more pronounced way? I think so. Yeah. I think that there is still a little bit of a lag behind, for example, um, companies that really look to social media to understand their branding and what their customers want. Um, but I think, you know, if I could, if I have to pinpoint a moment, and I'm not saying that I'm particularly knowledgeable about this, but I would say the, the Oshahedi platform and what mm-hmm. it did in Kenya um, you know, that's not one of the big social media platforms, but it is effectively the same thing. It's crowdsourced information. Um, that I think was really a aha moment for many not-for-profits, development agencies, etc. It was like, okay, like there is information that we can get in real time from those that are experiencing those issues, you know, on the ground. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of propagated a lot of interest in, in different areas. Yeah. You know? I, I was actually, I was in Nairobi in the iHub when, uh, in 2016 during this past election in Kenya and when the whole team was, was, Ushi team was there and it was, uh-huh. it was, it was awesome. It was very cool just to watch them in action and that election went off, went off great. There was, wasn't a yeah. lot of violence and. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it amazing the things that, Kenyan entrepreneurs come up with. Yes, yes. No, er- and Eric Kirsten is a well. great, great entrepreneur. He's doing a lot of cool stuff. His new company, Brick, is really cool as well. Oh. He's like a hardware device that brings internet access to a lot of remote areas that, that wouldn't have it before. Um, I'll check that out. Uh, Thanks. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very okay. cool. But I, I would be curious to hear about some of the um, the data sources that you, you all have to work with. Because I'm assuming like a big challenge in these markets is, is actually getting uh, good data in, yeah. right? And... Uh, so like what what are kind of some of the data sources or areas that you focus when when it comes to that? So because we're very much focused on political and social risk and we also include sort of climate issues in mm. that because they they relate very much to social risk and companies are very much interested in understanding what climate change will mean for their operations not just in terms of the risk but what kinds of opportunities they can find in that as well. So the data that we try to source, we understand that these large data sets, as I mentioned, have certain biases, they have gaps in them, they're very much at the national level, often not not particularly granular. So one of the ways in which you can find data of that quality is by looking through written textual reports, Mm -hmm. right? And with advances in machine learning and NLP specifically, we suddenly have the potential to tap into this resource that has either been sort of sitting on a shelf or not particularly well used for guiding decision making. You know, if you have a report, like a lot of companies rely um, on written reports with on the ground intelligence, right, regarding political issues, social unrest, etc. Somebody has to sit there and consume that with their human bias they have to also be able to process that and convert that into decision making and actions that takes an awfully long time and it's a particularly inefficient process if we're able to extract all that information aggregate it normalize it and create pathways so that that can be used effectively for decision making we've gone a very long way to actually accurately identifying social risk yeah 
So that, I mean, that could be a huge impact for, for public and, and private sector. Yes, for, very much so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, you know, both feed into each other from a governance perspective. Yeah. Uh, huh. That's amazing. Okay. That, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's not an easy task. No, I, I bet not. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, so like, I'm sure a lot of these reports, like, are they, are they literally just like sitting in some back room? Just like, and you have to go fish them out, scan them and process them. Is that, or are a lot of them actually online and, a lot of them are online. I mean, okay. you'd, be, you'd be surprised what you can find nowadays online. Um, mm. the, the major problem is sort of consistency right. um, or right. regularity in how often they're producing consistency in terms of the format. So are the same terms being used? You, you have kind of evolution of terms over time. Um, you have different data points being collected, you know, different data uh, variables being collected at different points. It's being written up in different ways. So that makes the task much more complicated. But as you mentioned, this also has implications for, for the public sector. And one of the things that we're doing is providing that feedback to, um, to governments, to development agencies and saying, Hey, you know, you want to make the best of this laborious process that you go through in collecting this data. And then it ends up being locked in really inefficient ways in the text. Here's how you can make that more valuable, make, make it more useful. Mm. And do you find that a lot of these agencies and companies that work with you all, they're all concerned about like very similar problems that your data actually turns up like there's like th- these are actually the problems over here, right? Like, or, is, or do you feel like it's very, I mean, it's very diverse. It's just like each market is very, very different and each you know organization, those markets have different concerns and. Or is it, is it consistent across mm. those markets? I think I think there's a lot of consistency, and I think there's consistency, you know, believe it or not, between what corporations, companies want in high risk markets, and what development actors want in these very same places. And one of those is the ability to manage social risk. You know, whether you call it social risk or whether you name it something else in the development space, it is the same issue across the board. The other one is, of course, how, how do we manage that once we've gone through identifying it? How do we manage that? What works and what doesn't work over what time frames? What are the best entry points? What are the opportunity costs of one method over another? Um, these are the kinds of issues that I feel really have consistency across industries and also, you know, between within industries as well. And it seems like that risk is even something that's bleeding over into um, some of the Western countries as well. I think I read a blog post on on your site about the yellow vest protests and how that, that cost companies, I think it was like, was it a hundred million dollars for that like one single event, which is, uh, I believe it was 2017. There were, um, trying to remember the exact percentage uh, maybe 50, 60% of companies experience one event in these markets like, like, like costs, though, like, you know, yeah. the majority of their actual political, geopolitical costs that, that went into like a deal that they were doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, that figure was actually, um, you're, you're absolutely right on, on the numbers. The figure was actually, I think it was collected by EY for 2017 or 2018 and looking at emerging markets and, trying to quantify a little bit the impacts of political and social risk. And this, uh, you know, the, the data was saying that companies over, and I've forgotten what it, you know, what the threshold was, over a certain threshold, 50% of those country, companies had said that they had experienced losses in excess of 100 million from a single event. Right. You know, and then the follow-up question to that, it was, what do they do about that? And I think that, you know, the top 
the top answer was uh, nothing. <laughs> this is just, this is the nature of these high risk markets. The second one was political risk insurance and figuring out how they and their footprint has an impact on those risks was way, way down on, on that list of, of what they do about risk. Right. Okay. So, you, I mean, so you've, I mean, you've had years of experience working in these markets and it's kind of seeing which, which of these least developed con- or least developed countries are actually making progress and developing a private sector. So if you, if you had an inv- your investor hat on right now, <laughs> uh, you know, what, what, what frontier markets would you kind of, uh, or maybe most excite you right now? Yeah. Well, I think you'd have to look at sort of factors that contribute to, to success, you know, or a return on, on investment, yes, yes, right? Sure. Um, the first one is exactly what we said, sort of governance framework for investment specifically. So is there a court system? Is there security and contracts, et cetera? Um, another one obviously is currency fluctuations and volatility and in, in currency. Um, the, another one is the workforce, the labor force, um, where investments in education are being made, investments in the economy are being made. And if you look at all of those, uh, you see certain countries kind of stick out, um, compared with others. Now, one of the anomalies to that is Rwanda that has made huge strides in terms of growing its economy, a new economy that's based very much on entrepreneurship, clean tech, um, and technology more broadly. But if you look at the governance of Rwanda, it has a very stable government. Um, it's not a particularly democratic government. Um, Singapore was very similar in that sense. Um, so the, that's one country. In Africa, of course, Nigeria. We have to give a plug to, to Nigeria. Yes. Um, there's so much entrepreneurship coming out of the country and so many ideas and so little investment going into, into these enterprises. And you get a lot of value for your money as an investor in for this sure. context. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nigeria, if they could just fix the electrical grid, give people consistent power. I mean, that can unlock, <laughs> that can unlock 10% a year GDP. J- yeah. Just, just with that. Yeah. 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 I think, I think there also needs to be more investments in education, uh, towards meeting the new economy that Nigeria is moving towards. Uh, I have, I'm on the board of a couple of entities. One is a, a not-for-profit called Tech for, Tech for Dev. And the other one is Coven Labs. A friend of mine runs this company. Oh, I've heard of them. Yeah. yeah. They, they went through the accelerator program. Oh, as that's, well. that's why I've heard yeah. of them. Okay. Yes. And they take talented, um, young people and train them up as data scientists in using skills that will serve well in the new economy and providing them placements with companies, largely companies abroad. And one of the issues that they faced is that deficits in the education system and, you know, it's kind of, kind of like basic skills, like how to work as a team, like how to, how to speak with a customer, which is not you know, necessarily something that you're taught in school, but it, you know, the basis of that comes from, from a good education that that's not there. And they're having to supplement those skills and yeah. the training that they provide. So do you all work with any like education NGOs or any ed- education like on, on the government end to help them kind of see the data of where things are going to, to align them with, with, with that or? We haven't done that yet. Okay. No, no we're well, working directly with the, with the entrepreneurs. And right. Sales. I mean, it's, it certainly seemed like, um, you know, China rose so quickly because they, 
yeah. uh, provided the correct education. I mean, even better than here in the U.S. I mean, I think China is going to be the most dominant economy uh, over, over the next few decades because they have the best engineers. Yeah. And they have the best engineers because they uh, educated, right? The best yeah. engineers. Um, yeah, so. they've invested heavily and they have a very, you know, kind of a very aggressive approach to growing um, <laughs> that side of the yes. uh, of the economy and ensuring that they keep up in terms of technological advances and how they can be applied. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think are the biggest differences between how a like a large corporate versus like a nimble startup? Like, what do you think are the different problems that both of those can kind of solve in their in their own respect? Mm. Yeah, good question. Um, well, you know, I don't think there's there are too many limits to what entrepreneurs can do. You know, we had this email exchange earlier about um, what are the sectors or the industries where entrepreneurs can't really bring about change. And, you know, I spent a little bit of time thinking about that. And infrastructure, healthcare, perhaps. But if you look at some of um, the companies that I see emerging in many different contexts, uh, healthcare. One is the provision of quality healthcare at cost, you know, that isn't influenced by corruption and quality issues. There are enterprises that are monitoring this and providing feedback to, um, healthcare providers and to govern governments so that they can, you know, play the supervision role that they're supposed to. Um, drug quality and counterfeit drugs on the market. There are a number of different enterprises in different markets that also help with identifying drugs that are, you know, past their expiry date, that are counterfeit, that have poor quality, etc. so that consumers have access to the medicines that actually work for them. So I, you know, I kind of believe that entrepreneurship doesn't have any limits in terms of in terms of the types of changes and the sectors in which they can work. I agree. Yeah. Well, and also entrepreneurs hopefully eventually become the large corporate, right? And so installing that good governance, good culture early on is very important because right. it'll exponentially affect the world as they grow and as they um uh, as they exponentially yeah. grow. I think with corporates, it's an I mean, they, most corporations govern these huge supply chains, right? right? So I think a lot of the climate issues come down to mainly supply chain, you know, sustainable supply chain issues that can be implemented. Um, and kind of a lot of the markets that you operate in are kind of ground zero for a lot of these supply chains. So, yeah. so I would assume like a lot of companies like work, work with you all to kind of, you know, get visibility right into geopolitical risk within their supply chain. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's. Geopolitical risk within the sub supply chain, but also I think that you're, you you know you must be aware that looking at um, corruption, human rights issues, um, etc. within the su supply chain has gathered a lot of steam, uh, you yes. know, over the past decade, and you see a lot of companies that are entirely committed to ensuring. Um, these governance issues across their operations and supply chain, not just, you know, within their central operations. Right. Um, and that's great. Yeah. I think that the other thing that, that we see is companies moving towards seeing opportunity in what was initially conceived of simply as risk, you know, climate change as a risk to access to water or in, in inciting social unrest. Um, now we see companies thinking about, okay, what kind of products can we use that help with climate change adaptation? You know, how can we 
get into the market to ensure that our customers also have access to X that will help them to cope with, you know, these types of impacts. So I think that the idea that there are opportunities in change is one that corporations are starting to embrace in high-risk markets, but something that entrepreneurs have been on to for a very long time. Yeah. Right? Awesome. Well, Safi Lakhani, co-founder of Cognetics, is there anything you want to say to the people before, before we sign off? Um, <laughs> it, could be, it, could, it could be, you know, uh, basically, you know, your vision for where Cognetics is going or like kind of where the industry that, that you're operating is, is, is going and how can, uh, yeah. how can, how can it change the world, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, that all entities need to pay attention to the fact that, that the world is changing, that millennials are exercising greater power in the choices that they make, that companies in order to keep up with these changes will need to ensure that their operations, their products, uh, their internal governance, this is all aligned with the values that we see becoming more and more prominent in the world. And very much the same thing with, with development actors as well, to really show the commitment to that through evidence-based programming. All right. Well, Safi, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me here.